Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. reading from the book of Matthew. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light under a lamp and light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your, God, your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, before we jump in to our series on the Beatitudes, I just have to, to start by clearing the air a little bit because if you were here at all for Larry's uh, series on Waterstone 2.0, you may remember that a, a few weeks ago he mentioned that uh, he had an illustration about a woman named 1800s, uh, was kind of her nickname, and, and she would yell at the preacher anytime he didn't mention Jesus soon enough, get him up! And she would yell and heckle the preacher. As Larry was talking about that, he said, at any point, if you feel like myself or Danielle or some of the other preachers, don't mention Jesus soon enough, you are free to heckle us. And uh, I, I got to be honest, I felt a little personally attacked when he did that. And uh, I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to show him. And next time I get up to preach, I'm just going to get up there and I'm going to say, Jesus, 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 and get it out of the way. And then I realized that maybe starting a sermon by trying to get Jesus out of the way is not the best way to, to preach. So I don't really know how to start, but I'm just going to ask that you're gracious with me and don't heckle me too much. I promise we will talk a lot about Jesus today. It's kind of hard not to when you are in the Beatitudes. Uh, but to start, I just have a question for you, Waterstone. Are you blessed? Have you had a blessed day? Maybe a blessed week? I will be honest, it's a little hard to be blessed when the Patriots are in the Super Bowl. I understand we're all wrestling with that a little bit. But, but are you blessed? As I've been thinking about this series and, and kicking it off with you this morning, I, I just was struck this week by how loaded that word blessed is. I mean, for instance, tonight, 
after the Super Bowl is over and this guy inevitably wins another ring, which I'm not rooting for like entirely, but I kind of hope he does because then I think he will just leave and retire and we can be rid of him. 20 years is long enough. Let some of the rest of us have some fun. Um, but after whichever team wins tonight, I, I would be willing to bet anyone in here a Chick-fil-A sandwich um, that whoever wins is going to mention that word blessed somewhere in their speech afterwards. They'll say something about how they've been blessed by the big man upstairs to with their gifts and talents to, to pursue victory. Their team is blessed in some way, or, or maybe they're going to Disney World and they're blessed. So is that what blessed means? Is it victory? Or what about how we use it as a, just a common courtesy? I mean, if I sneeze, you say, bless you. Exactly. I'm really glad you guys participated with me there. We say bless you. Right? Is that what it means? Am I blessed because I have allergies? It does not feel like I'm blessed come springtime when I'm sneezing and sniffling and I, and I have all the allergies that I do. Or what about the great Bob Dylan, one of my favorite musicians of all time? He's got that, that great song, uh, Forever Young, where the first line in it is what? May God bless and keep you always, and may your wishes all come true. Is that what blessing is? All of our wishes coming true, God giving us everything that we might desire? Or what about on social media? This one might sting a little bit for some of us, but I have a quick question for you. Maybe a little bit of a confessional time. It's a safe place. But how many of us in this room have ever used the hashtag blessed on our social media accounts? And maybe a deeper confession, how many of us have ever used that unironically, but actually as a, a thing? And, and I was struck by that this week because I went on Instagram and I was looking at this hashtag and I was shocked to find out that it had been used over 105 million times. And that doesn't even account for all of the variations that might go along with it, like incredibly blessed, or hashtag blessed up, or hashtag blessed with a prayer hands emoji. Like, there were so many different ways it had been used. It was, it was millions and millions and millions of times. And then, to be honest, I didn't scroll through all of them, but I did look through a few, and what I could... Um, gain from looking at that was that most of the pictures that had to, the hashtag blessed had something to do with material prosperity. They had something to do with a, an amazing vacation that someone had just taken or an amazing time with family over the holidays. Even there were some that had to do with an amazing gym time that just happened. Some people were hashtagging blessed that, that they just got a new car or that something good happened at work or that they just uh, have a great relationship. And it was all of these things, these blessings, that made them use hashtag blessed. Is that what it means to be blessed? To have all of the things that we desire, all the good things in life. That question of what it means to be blessed is a central question as we dive into the series on the Beatitudes and one that we'll continually return to. Because as Steffi just read, each of the Beatitudes begins with that word, blessed. So what does it mean when Jesus says that we're blessed? When he says blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says blessed are the peacemakers, what does that mean? And before we jump into answering that question, we have to take a little bit of time to, to kind of get our bearings on what the Beatitudes are. And, and I'd like to take time to, to explain them because I think they're actually one of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus. 
They're one of the teachings that we come to and don't actually know what we're talking about and what Jesus was talking about when he says that word blessed and when he says blessed are the, the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn. And we've got to wrap our head around what he is talking about when he says those words. And so I'd like to to talk a little bit about what the Beatitudes are not, and then dive into a few things that are important for us to know about what the Beatitudes are. So first, I would say that the Beatitudes are not commands. Sometimes people come to the Beatitudes, and they think that this is a list of behaviors or actions that we're supposed to do in order for God to bless us. They said that they're kind of a new Ten Commandments, that if you do these things, then God will bless you. But I would propose to you that that is actually a mistaken way of reading them, because the Beatitudes, they're also not a formula for divine favor. Even though they tell us how we can be blessed, it's not saying that if you do these things, then God will bless you more. If you do these things, then your life will be better and more blessed, which actually is is pretty logical, but we don't always read it that way. But it makes sense if you look at blessed are the, the, the mourners, that, that doesn't really indicate happiness or the better life. Like when I'm sad, that's not the best life. So it's not a formula for divine favor that we do in order for God to, to give us what we want. And then finally, they're not circumstantial. The Beatitudes are not based on the highs and lows of everyday life. Some people translate the Beatitudes, that word blessed, as, as happy are those, but, but that's a really misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about um, in the Beatitudes. They're not circumstantial because happiness comes and goes with whatever might be happening in our life that day or week or month. And Jesus is getting at something far bigger and far more beautiful than just the circumstances of life and what circumstances we need in our life in order to be happy and blessed. And so what the Beatitudes are, I would say, is rather than a list of commands, they're a description of his disciples. They're a description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They're not an action that we do, but a way of being in the world. And that's an important contrast we need to understand as we go through this series. And then secondly, while they're not a formula for divine um, favor, they are a formula, in a sense, for flourishing. A more accurate translation than happy for that word blessed is that the, the word flourishing. That Jesus is talking about, if you are this way in the world, then that will result in your flourishing. He's saying there's an alternate way that we can exist and live our lives that results in our ultimate, true, full life in the kingdom of God. And then finally, while they're not circumstantial, they are deeply embedded in the kingdom. In Matthew 4, 17, as Jesus starts his public ministry, he begins by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. And then just shortly after that, he begins performing some miracles and and the crowds begin to follow him and it's crowds of people who are lame, who are poor, who are destitute, who are broken. And he takes those people who are following him up onto a mountainside and he opens his mouth and he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what we need to realize in that that kind of uh, context is that what Jesus is trying to say is that there's both blessing presently in our lives that happen if if we live this way, if we are this kind of people, and that there's also a blessing to come in the life to come when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And sometimes we come to the Beatitudes and we think, oh, that's just like, of course I'll be blessed when I'm in heaven. But Jesus is saying that there's blessings to be had here and now, presently, 
on earth if we live our lives as members of his kingdom. And so we need to keep those in our hearts and our minds as we move forward in this series because one, I don't want us to be crushed under the weight of expectation that I have to live in a certain way in order to be blessed by God. That, that I have to follow these certain rules or commands in order for, for myself or my family to receive blessing from God. And secondly, we have to keep this on our hearts and our minds so we understand that Jesus is inviting us into an inspirational living that is so countercultural to what the world offers that it is the true and blessed, flourishing way of life. And we need to keep that in mind so that, that we understand what Jesus is talking about when he comes to the Beatitudes. Because the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, sets us on a trajectory where we understand more about what it means to be blessed and what it means to actually have that flourishing life. But before we jump into that, I'd like to pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that, uh, Father, as we gather together to worship you, to open your word, Father, I pray that, that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you would have for us this morning. Father, I pray we would come to a better understanding of what it means to be blessed, that we would come to a better understanding of, of what it means to be poor in spirit, and Father, I pray that you would shift and change and mold and transform our lives so that we would look more like the people of God, more like the people you have called us to, more like followers of your son, Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be blessed? Is it what I talked about earlier, that it's all of our wishes coming true, as Bob Dylan said, or it's like we see on social media that, that we have all of the health and, and finances and wealth and the good things in life that we desire? Is it our team winning the Super Bowl? I mean, if I'm honest, I, I want all of those things. I want to be healthy. I want my wife to stay healthy. I want my team to win the Super Bowl. It hasn't happened since I was 10. I'm a Cowboys fan. It's been rough, right? Like, we want those things. Is that what it means to be blessed? Is that what Jesus is talking about? And I think we have to wrestle with something before we understand what Jesus is talking about because we have a way of viewing bless, blessing in our culture that I think is so countercultural to what Jesus thought. I mean, like I mentioned on social media, there, there are the 105 million times that hashtag has been used, and it always has something to do with material prosperity, and it always has something to do with the good life that we hope that we can get. What was so interesting is that as I was scrolling through some of those pictures, I was struck by, by this one person, uh, this woman who, she's got a, what I think is a really weird job. Have any of you guys ever heard of the, the job title social media influencer? Like that's a thing in 2019 that people can do where, where basically their job is to travel to amazing places, use amazing products, and be free advertising for people, but they get paid for doing this as people see all their followers on social media see these amazing places they go and these amazing products they use. And this woman, that's her lifestyle. So she travels to uh, these incredible places and these far off lands and, and incredible hotels. And what struck me is that she mentioned in one of her posts around the, the, the turn of the year that 2018 had been the hardest year of her life. What struck me as so odd about that is as I scrolled through her pictures from the previous year, I would have never been able to guess that her year had been difficult at all. 
Because there was this curated vision of herself, this version of herself where, where she was traveling to these amazing places, using these amazing things, these amazing relationships, had everything life could offer her. And yet at the end of the year, she said that it was the worst year of her life. And what struck me about that is that she also said in this post about how last year was the worst year, that she was claiming this next year would be the most blessed year of her life. And I was just struck by our our culture's obsession with blessing and how much we equate it with the things in life that we desire and that when we have them, that is the blessed life. But I don't think it is just our culture that is obsessed with blessing, because one of the other most common um, photographs in, in Instagram around the hashtag blessed was not the, the health and wealth and the prosperity, but it was uh, devotional times or pictures of devotionals. And you may have seen some of them. They look something like this. God has the most amazing plan for you. Hashtag blessed. And it's this idea that, that God has these great and grandiose plans for our lives and that everything is going to work out if we follow him. And it really kind of unsettled me because I also, it made me think of some of the sermons I've been listening to this year, not here at Waterstone, but I sometimes listen to sermons from other churches and other places for, for personal growth or to learn about how to, to preach. And, and what struck me is as I've listened to these sermons, I've been amazed at how many preachers, preachers I trust and respect and admire, have preached messages to their congregation about how 2019 is going to be the best year of their life. And that whatever problem they may have in their life or whatever may have been plaguing their life, God is going to show up in amazing and powerful ways and fix that circumstance. He's going to show up and fix that problem and make everything better. And as I've listened to that, I'm thinking, okay, you're speaking to me and you're saying my year is going to be the most blessed year of my life. But like maybe, but we just got through January and my office already flooded, my car's broken down, and my dog still eats his poop no matter how much I try to get him to stop. Like, I hope this isn't the most blessed year of my life that God has for me. If it is, like, oh my goodness, like, can I get some more of something different, right? Like, but we have that idea that, that we share with culture that blessing has to do with our circumstances and the things that God gives us, the good things in life. It's all about material prosperity. But I think we've missed what Jesus means when he says that we can have a blessed and flourishing life. Because it's not about equating blessing with material prosperity. In Jesus' words and in the kingdom and in the Beatitudes, blessing always is tied not to material prosperity but to brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit the poor in spirit. And we have to ask ourselves, is our view of blessing, does it align with Jesus? Or does it align with culture? Because I think there's nothing more detrimental to the Christian movement than when our culture and the world can look at Christians and say, you look just like me. The things that you long for and you desire and you hope your life turns out to be, they're just like me. Because Jesus comes to the side of a mountain, to the poor and the destitute, and to the lame and to the sick, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He is presenting an alternative, a countercultural view of what it means to be blessed. And my fear is that the church, 
that we have fallen into the same patterns of the world and look for blessings in our circumstances and the good things in life and claim that it's okay because God has given them to us, that we are not presenting an alternate view. We are not representing what Christ has called us to be, which is a distinct people set aside for him that are blessed not because of their material prosperity, but blessed because of their brokenness. And that's why I think Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And does that actually equal blessing? Doesn't sound like it. But poor in spirit, the the way I would describe it or, or define that term for us is that to be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's to recognize your need for God, that you are in debt to God and there's nothing you can do to get out of debt. Are there any fans of The Office, the TV show The Office in here? You can, yep, okay, two. You guys are my people, you're my people. All right, love the TV show The Office. For those of you that haven't seen it, I'll still try to use this illustration in a way that you can kind of follow along and understand what I'm saying, but there's this episode in, in The Office where Michael Scott, who's the, played by Steve Carell, he's the boss of The Office. He's a bumbling buffoon. He's always politically incorrect. He mistreats people, and he, his life is a mess. But this particular episode, he realizes that he, he's in severe financial trouble. Like, he is in debt, and he brings the accountants of The Office to do his personal finances, and they're like, man, you've been spending money on stuff you, like, no one should ever spend money on. This is terrible. You are in so much trouble. And so he's trying to figure out how do I get out of trouble, so he's talking to people about maybe there's a sure bet I can make about, like, a, a fight or something. And and then one of the people from the office comes to him and and they say, you know what actually is a good way to get out of your financial stress? Just declare bankruptcy. I've done it a lot. It's great. It's like a free blank slate, free check. Like you get to start over. Nothing's held against you. Like just declare bankruptcy. And Michael Scott, taking this terrible advice, walks into the middle of the office and everyone's looking at him like, what are you doing? We know you're having a weird day. It's fine. And he, he walks into the office and in front of everyone, he just yells out, I declare bankruptcy! And, uh, and he just declares it. And a little bit later in the episode, the accountants come to him and they say, you know, just like saying you're bankrupt doesn't actually do anything to solve your financial problems, right? And he says, well, I didn't, I didn't say it. I declared it. So it's different. And, um, and it's this amazing television moment where you just see, one, his stupidity, but two, uh, his, his trying to solve his indebtedness by declaring bankruptcy. But I think, in a weird way, God has called us to be foolish like him and declare our bankruptcy before him, to come before the throne of God and say, there is nothing I can do to fix my situation with you. There's nothing I can do to get out of debt with you. I need you to show up in my life. I need you to make things right. I am bankrupt and broken before you. But I don't think we always like that idea of having to come to God and declaring our spiritual bankruptcy, declaring our brokenness. And there's three ways I kind of see people respond to the idea that we're supposed to be broken and poor in spirit before God. That it's a way we can kind of skirt around it and continue with God as if we're not actually as bankrupt and poor in spirit as we are. And the first is this. I see this a lot um, as, as a former student pastor. I saw this. And then also just from our, our secular culture at large. But I, I see people who, who see their brokenness. And rather than having any shame around it, they actually go the other way. And they are completely unashamed and fully embrace the brokenness and sin in their lives. 
and they live in ways that, that, that Scripture and Jesus and God teaches is not actually the right way to live, and, and they don't care because it makes them happy, so they lean into it hard, and they do whatever they think will make them happy. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, I can just do whatever I want, and it's okay because it makes me happy. And they're completely unashamed of any kind of brokenness in their lives. And I think for those people, if that's you, Jesus and the Beatitudes and and calling us to be poor in spirit is asking us to recognize that our sin is sin. Even if it makes us happier or we find some sort of fulfillment in it, he is asking us to call it what it is, which is brokenness within us, trading God for something else. And to recognize that we are poor in spirit and in need of him. And secondly, I see not only are people unashamed, but I see people kind of go to the other extreme. And often I see this in our churches where people are so ashamed of their sin and their brokenness and the things that they've done and the habits that they have and the way that their heart is far from God that they hide from God. That they choose to live their life in such a way where they compartmentalize and pretend their sin isn't there. And so they can be one person with this sin going on in their life. And then they go to church and everything is fine. And there's nothing wrong with their life. They don't need God because they don't recognize their brokenness. Because they're so overwhelmed with their shame and their guilt that they think there's nothing I could do for God to be able to accept me. And so they hide and pretend that it's just this side thing in their life and not tearing them apart. And to those people, I think Jesus is saying, be poor in spirit, be broken, declare your sin before me. You don't have to hide and be ashamed. And then finally, the the third person, the third way I often see people wrestle with their brokenness is is actually um, one that's really common, I think, in our community. And if I'm honest, is actually the scariest for me. Because it's not the person who's unashamed or, or so filled with shame that they have to hide from God. It's the person who's completely unaware of their brokenness because they have so sanitized and insulated their lives that they don't realize their lives are actually broken. They have all the blessings that life has to offer, and so they have no need for God. I mean, who needs God when you have the house and the family and the health and the wealth that you desire and that you need? And so they live their lives as if God has nothing to offer them. And and they live in such a way that that maybe God is a part of it, but he's just the side piece. He's one amongst a mini blessing. And they live, the, I think this is so dangerous, why I say it's so scary, is because we get to a place where when you think that your life isn't broken, you don't want to be a part of brokenness, and so you don't want to be a part of the church, because that's where all the broken people are, right? I mean, the, the broken people there in church, I don't want to be a part of a small group, that's where people are really broken, And so when you have no need of of God's community and of God, you live this life where it's just Jesus and me. And you see this in people who are like, I don't need to go to church. I'm just going to go encounter Jesus up on top of the mountain while I ski. Or or, I don't need the church because I can just go to a coffee shop and and I don't need to be in a small group where I can talk with people because I can just go to a coffee shop and have a date with Jesus and it's Jesus and me. And the problem with that is twofold. One, The Beatitudes, the blessing, the flourishing life is always, always communal. For theirs is the kingdom. It is not an individual blessing. 
And secondly, I don't think we realize that as much as we know God loves us, he is not that self-indulgent, that he just wants to sit with you on a mountaintop and encounter life with you. He wants you to be a part of a community, a part of small groups, a part of a church that is his community where true blessing and flourish happen. And so many times we expect the blessing of God apart from his community and apart from him. And then we look at him like, why are you not blessing my life? Why is it not better? And we've misunderstood what it means to be blessed. And we're unaware of the brokenness in our lives. And so we think we don't need God and we don't need his community. And to those of us in that category, I think Jesus says he's calling us to be poor in spirit. He is calling us into brokenness. The brokenness of ourselves and the brokenness of the world around us. To stop insulating our lives You want to see your brokenness. Be in a small group as we go through this series. You will see people who are broken, and they will pull out of you your own brokenness. But we don't like that because we have equated blessing with material prosperity. We we are full of, of churches and people who think that the blessings of God are all about the good things that God has to offer us. And we're obsessed with blessing without experiencing the brokenness that Jesus says is is linked to blessing. And so, if that's what it means to be poor in spirit in order to be blessed, and if that's what it means that that we have the flourishing life is that we recognize our poor in spirit, we have to ask ourselves a, a final question. Is it actually worth it? Like, is being poor in spirit in order to be blessed actually worth it because you can look at the blessing that the world offers and it is really appealing at first glance I mean the the blessing of riches and wealth and of prosperity and and a a healthy family and and a home that that's nice and fashionable like we can look at that and say man I desire that I want that but does it actually lead to flourishing see we have a, a competing view of what it means to flourish Cynthia Jarvis, uh, she's a a theologian who wrote a commentary on the Beatitudes, and and she says this about uh, what our culture would say our Beatitudes are. Rather than Jesus, what our Beatitudes would be as a culture. And she says, in our culture, blessed are the rich in things and in self-assurance. Blessed are those untouched by loss. Blessed are the powerful Blessed are those who are realistic about righteousness, compromising at every turn. Blessed are those who demand an exact an eye for an eye. Blessed are the crafty and opportunistic. Blessed are those bold enough to make war. Blessed are those who doing good things receive many accolades. And the one that, that pierced me. Blessed are those who following Jesus are widely praised and adored. See, we have a way of thinking about blessing in our culture and in our churches that is so counter to what Jesus has offered us. And it's actually not hard to see that this list, although we, at first glance, we might think it leads to blessing, we can see that, that it doesn't play out that way always. I mean, just take, for instance, our, our celebrity culture. We can look at the celebrities in, in, in our culture and we can say, man, they're beautiful. They have amazing homes. They have incredible jobs. They have uh, uh, great families and, and they have all the things that they could ever desire. But how many times do our celebrity stories, not always, but how, how often do they end, not with flourishing, but with scandal? 
with depression, with addiction, with suicide, with troubled kids. See, the way that the world offers blessing does not lead to flourishing, but to destruction and loss and grief. And we can follow that way if we like, but, but the king is offering an alternative way. The king is saying that there's an alternative way to find flourishing in this life. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessedness of being poor in spirit is that you inherit, you receive the kingdom of heaven. But is that worth it? Is that actually the flourishing that we long for and hope for? I would argue yes, and, and I think a, a clear example we have of, of someone who lived out, out that idea of blessed are the poor in spirit, for they inherit the kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom, is the apostle Peter. Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He was in the inner circle of disciples. He was one of the three that, that were closest to Jesus, who knew him most. He, he was a dear friend of Jesus. And what's interesting about Peter's story and his journey is that he, he starts in a place where he has this intense spiritual bravado, kind of the opposite of spiritual bankruptcy. He, he just thinks he has all this stuff to offer Jesus. He has the right answers, the solutions. In fact, the night that Jesus is, is with his disciples at the Last Supper, and, and they're talking about what's to come, and Jesus is telling them that he's going to be betrayed Peter's, and, and killed at the cross, Peter says, I don't care if you go to the cross. I will follow you to prison and even to death. And Jesus says, actually, all of you in this room are going to abandon me and leave me. And Peter, even full of more spiritual bravado, says, no way will I ever leave you or abandon you. I will always follow you. And Jesus turns to Peter, and you want to talk about an awkward dinner table conversation. He says, before tonight is over, you will betray me and deny me three times. And the story continues that, that Jesus goes up onto a mountain to pray with his disciples and soldiers come to arrest him and take him to trial. And, and Peter follows and at the trial, three times he's asked if he knows Jesus. And each and every time he says, I do not know that man. I do not know what you're talking about. But what's interesting is in the gospel of Luke, it says that after the third denial, when the, the rooster crows as Jesus said it would, it says that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter after the third denial. You want to recognize your brokenness and your poverty of spirit. Look Jesus in the eyes after you've betrayed him. And it says that in that moment, Peter turned and wept and left crying bitterly because he had betrayed and abandoned his savior and his friend. And the story goes that, of course, Jesus is killed. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And Peter's story isn't over because we have this amazing, beautiful picture of Jesus and Peter's relationship at the end of John, where Peter has gone back to fishing He's gone back to fishing because he's, he's so ashamed of what he did, of the way that he betrayed Jesus, that he thinks he has nothing left to offer God, that he has nothing left to offer the kingdom, nothing he can do anymore to make things right, which is exactly where Jesus wanted him. And so Jesus takes him after the, the night of fishing, and they walk together on the beach, and, and three times again, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? 
And each time Jesus asks him that, Peter responds with, Lord, you know that I love you. But it says that the third time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he was hurt. And you can imagine that in that moment, Peter realizes what Jesus is doing. And in the three times for the three, three betrayals, you can imagine him thinking back to that moment where he looked Jesus in the eye after he had betrayed him. And the hurt that he felt at recognizing there was nothing he could do. And he says, one of the bravest things I think Peter has ever said in any of the Gospels, he says, Lord, you know all things. All things. It's as if Peter is saying, you know my heart. You can search my heart. You know that I love you. The shame and hiddenness that he has is now gone because of the love that Christ had for him. So he says, you know that I love you. And I think Peter's story is so interesting because I think the, the, the fault Peter had was that when Jesus says he's going to the cross, I don't think Peter actually believed that Jesus was going to the cross. The reason he was so willing to say that I will follow you to prison and death is he did not think that following Jesus actually leads to prison and death. He, like us, thought that following Jesus leads to glory and riches and the good life. And so, of course, I'll follow you wherever you say you're going to go because you are the one who's going to bless my life. That following you leads to the good life I've always longed for. And what Jesus is telling us is that blessedness and blessing does not come from getting the life that we always hoped we could have, but it comes from brokenness. The way of flourishing leads to the cross. You see, we have this idea that, that Jesus died for us so that we can somehow have a blessed life, but the truth is Jesus did not die for us so that we can have a blessed life, but so that we can give our lives back to him that we can pledge our allegiance to him, that we can say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the only way to flourishing in this life and in the life to come. And it is through his brokenness, his willingness to be broken for us, that we can say we are broken and that we are poor in spirit and that we are spiritually bankrupt before the cross because Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it's so fascinating to me that this, this part of the journey for Peter started at the Last Supper, at the table of communion, which we're about to participate in together. And it's so interesting to me because as Jesus is literally breaking bread, saying, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, Peter and the other disciples still don't understand what that actually means. And they're still under this impression that following Jesus is going to lead to a blessed life where they're kings and rulers and, and have power and authority in this world. And Jesus is saying, no. The blessed life leads to the foot of the cross where I have laid down my life for you. What greater blessing is there than a king willing to lay down his life for his followers and for his friends? For you and for me. Not so that we can have a blessed life, but so that we can give our lives back to him, to our king. And so as you come to the table today, 
We have gluten-free elements in the back. We have different stations around the room where you can receive the blessing of communion. I would ask that you come poor in spirit. I would ask that you come recognizing your deep need for Jesus, for his love, for his mercy, and for his grace. You would come in recognition of your sin and of your brokenness and your spiritual bankruptcy before the cross. Because when you come to the table and you partake of the body broken for you and the blood spilt for you, we are all reminded that our brokenness is not too deep for the power of the cross and for the love of our Savior. And so come willing to be honest about your brokenness and your dependency on him. Come honest about your need for Jesus.